Alrighty, welcome to Transition Seeker with Russell, show that purports to give you uh, creative and critical responses to pop culture and mass media and all that sort of conscious consumption palaver. Uh, Transition Seeker, it could also be Transition Finder. I actually found another quote like I did that other time, the um, Pablo Picasso quote from my Zen calendar here that enlarges upon that whole, whole idea of I don't seek, I find. Uh, I'll read it out for you because it's enlightening as always. Zen practices thus not a set of operations designed to achieve an external goal. In Zen, the effort and the result are not two different things. The means and the goal are not to be separated. The finding occurs in the very seeking itself that from bernard phillips they're very wise and very very clear yes um it's the, within the seeking itself so through seeking you find or in the act of seeking you find it gets very kind of meta there doesn't it yes um but i love that sort of stuff and uh, anyway what sort of stuff have we got for for this show i'm going to be talking about news values this time around, um, about journalism and the sort of decisions they make to choose uh, what they decide is going to be the news for any given day or week. And I'm also going to look at uh, um, what will hopefully be a fun segment on 10 questions to ask at your next book club meeting. Um, not necessarily even your book club meeting. You can ask them of yourself when you're just reading a book. But 10 very useful and interesting questions, I think they are, um, that I found that I'd like to share with you. So that's the show. We've got new adventures coming up. Be back in a sec. Hey, it's time for the new adventures here on Transition Seeker with Russell. What have I been up to lately uh, this week or so? What have I been consuming and what news is out there? Well, um, I mentioned that the new media outlet Means TV uh, last week. I ha- They also have um, an announcement of a new games division called Means Interactive, which I'd like to mention because their first title, first game that they produced is just coming out um, very shortly. It's called Tonight We Riot, which sounds very, very, very interesting. Um, it's, it's defined as a revolutionary crowd, retro brawler, scroller, about worker liberation. Um, it's all about toppling capital and its evil ruling class. Um, sounds pretty good to me, I've got to say. Uh, core features include uh, couch co-op, 20 unlockable weapons, gear and perks, a dog, a wood chipper, whimsy, endless mode, kaiju, that would be giant monsters, think uh, Godzilla sort of rampaging across the land, horror synth, the unique catharsis that only comes from throat-punching a billionaire. Available on May the 8th, which is actually a day away as I speak, um, and it's on Switch, PC, and Mac. Um, I couldn't find the price of the thing, but because it's uh, just a simple scroller, it it won't be much more than $10, I should think. I'm actually thinking I might um, purchase that and and check it out because it looks like a lot of fun. It's called Tonight We Riot. A little plug there... um, I think that will be a lot of fun. Uh, um, check it out. 
so next up, I um, belong to a group called Universal Basic Income Melbourne, and we had um, our, our most recent uh, conference. It was a video conference using good old um, using Zoom. And I certainly won't go into all the details about it, but um, one of the interesting um, actions that uh, we decided to make on this this particular call was to have a what we call a post party, which is something that I wasn't that familiar with, really. Strangely enough, um, what on earth was a post party? And uh, basically, the idea is that um, you have a, a topic or an item or a, a, um, something to say, basically that you want to promote an idea. And you post it up on social media, and it's coordinated so that uh, when when it goes up, everyone else in your group knows when it's going up and where it's going, and they actually start um, responding uh, en masse as a group, doing a kind of a kind of hack the social media. Other terms are like a swarm or an intervention um, that happens, and. Uh, a post party is ultimately what it is, and um, it's a great little idea. Something that was kind of new to me, I guess. Uh, and when, and now, and when I think about it now, when I look at uh, Twitter feeds and so forth, I, a lot of that does happen. You you find someone does put up a question, and all of a sudden, there's all these responses, and you wonder whether that was um, planned. And uh, apparently, it, it was, and it happens quite a lot. Um, but a very useful um, campaigning tool, I think. I'll see it. Obviously, a very useful. Um, advertising tool too happens a lot people um, it happens for good or, or ill I suppose too depending on, on your point of view depending on what's being posted too um, hopefully um, you're a bit down with the whole idea of a UBI if you're not I, I can't do more than ask you to check out um, the Australian Greens platform particularly the Greens New, the New South Wales Greens in particular um, the MP Abigail Boyd, who has a fantastic page for their um, universal well-being payment proposal. Um, that instead of calling it UBI, they're calling it a universal well-being payment, which goes into all the details about what they hope um, can be accomplished in New South Wales, um, being the focus. But um, obviously, it can also be applied um, nationwide. And some really great ideas and really clear, clear um, information. If you're really interested in that, uh, please check that out. You'll find it under gpayment.com.au. And on to uh, more pop culture type uh, subjects. I bought a book the other day. Surprise, surprise. It was The Books of Earthsea um, by Ursula Le Guin, the lovely hardback big hardback tome comprising of all um, her Earthsea stories, um, the, all the novels, all the short stories, and beautifully illustrated by the artist Charles Vess. Um, the book that I've seen her in the shops for a few, a few months now and been sort of thinking long and hard about whether I should buy it because, of course, I have almost everything in there on hardback and in different versions because I'm such a fan. But the only thing that I in there that I didn't have was uh, the final Earthsea short story um, that Ursula wrote not long before her death, a story called The Daughter of Odrin, um, which I've been trying to get online, at least uh, an e-book version, but I couldn't do it because um, it's kind of tied to the US market and uh, just could get hold of it. And this is the only way I could get hold of it. And uh, I guess the reason I'm mentioning this is obviously um, one short story in a rather large and a fairly expensive book, $65, um, doesn't seem like a very good return on investment. And so I had to find another way to 
uh, rationalize buying this thing and I guess what I came down to was that uh, that question of scarcity really because um, I knew I know at some point this book is not going to be available any longer um, this beautiful book and I kind of and didn't want to miss my chance basically um, it's obviously it's going to be an important artifact for me uh, down the line but it's just a beautiful thing and useful thing on its own because um, definitely worth those stories are worth rereading and next time I do reread them I will be rereading them with this particular edition the artwork here is also worth worth mentioning because uh, Charles Vess is actually one of my favorite artists I, I I became aware of him in the early 1980s. His work appeared in the fantasy illustrated magazine Heavy Metal, which I was a big fan of back then, and uh, always liked his work. And um, and he's this very delicate sort of style that fits very well with um, Le Guin's Earthsea stories. So that's another reason, another justification for buying the damn thing. Uh, but mainly it came to that question of scarcity. And uh, that's the only excuse I have, people. Uh, yeah. So I went and bought the damn thing. Uh, moving on, I discovered the Rolling Stones, that, that British band I'm sure you're all familiar with, have a new song out uh, called Living in a Ghost Town. It's actually very topical, uh, obviously, about uh, the the pandemic uh, issue at the moment where um, streets are, and towns are empty and, uh, and it's kind of interesting that they would come up with that song. The background to it apparently is they have been touring and the tour had been cut short because of the pandemic and they've been working on music for a new album uh, from the last year and they decided to um, sort of rework the lyrics to this song and, and put it out as a new release and um, there's a little video that comes with it. The song itself is um, not bad. It's a very mid-paced kind of languid sort of pace thing that I guess fits the uh, the intention of the, the, the song. Um the reviews have been generally pretty positive. There's been one negative one, the saying that um, Jagger could have done more with the lyrics and been a bit more political about it, but that's clearly not Jagger's suit these days. I think the last fairly political song he wrote or political lyric that I can think of is um, that song Undercover of the Night from back in the early 1980s. Um, yeah, I think Mick doesn't really do politics these days, but um, there's an interesting... Um, stuff online that uh, of um, Mick and uh, Keith uh, promoting the song worth checking out living in a ghost town the last thing I want to mention is um, so some science news um, I found in, in the good old Guardian a new scientists have discovered a new black hole though the important thing about it is it's the nearest one to us it's only a mere 1,000 light years away and uh, that sort of stuff is always interesting to me I, I, I always lament that science news really gets covered and uh, I'm always on the lookout for that sort of stuff, being a bit of a sciencey nerd that I am. So anyway, the article, uh, which is written by Nicola Davis, and uh, she reports that the black hole is unusually dark, apparently, and the, the reason for this, the scientists have discovered, is because um, it's not getting enough energy, it's not getting enough uh, material going into it, and it's therefore starving, which is a fantastic notion the idea of a starving black hole my mind has been blown when i think about that and uh yeah scientists go on to to describe how um they, they've discovered there's a lot more black holes in our galaxy than than they previously thought and uh one quote was that it's these findings are pretty much the tip of an iceberg an iceberg of black holes what a lovely image that is so that was a bit of a treat for me to to find that out 
the whole idea of an even darker black hole because it's starving and it's part of a group that make up the tip of an iceberg. What lovely imagery. Um, fabulous stuff. Um, but yeah, that's the most part of my new adventures for this week. Um, what's yours been? Welcome back, Transition Seeker here. I'm going to talk about news values now, a very long-awaited topic. been wanting to talk about it for quite a while. I've sort of mentioned it in passing at various times, and we've already talked about some news values already, things like currency. Basically what it is is the sort of criteria that uh, journalists and news organisations use to choose your news for you, uh, what they de- decided is news, because no news doesn't just happen and and all of a sudden it's there in front of you it's less in the old new york times concept of the all the news that's fit the print there's always lots of stuff left out obviously um and then they've got to narrow it down to something some sort of choice and, and it's basically what it is it's a way of choosing narrowing this down and uh some of the things we talked about before like currency is is one um Things that are happening recently that are trending uh, current and uh, they tend to get uh, the, the, the news value treatment. Another one, obviously, is conflict. Uh, any any sort of violence that happens, crime, political leaders having a spat, that sort of thing. That sort of, Anything that's conflict, that can be dramatical, um, can be framed in terms of that sort of story forming, will tend to get um, consideration for news. Now, anything out of the ordinary is another news value that's very popular. The classic example is that uh, man bites dog. But at the moment, we've got a very unusual situation with the coronavirus, and that clearly has to be uh, in the news, and that is a news value. All of which sort of begs the question for me, though, uh, if we're looking at things that are unusual, then uh, we're getting really a bit of a distorted view of what's going on in the world. It's always just um, the the violent occurrences, uh, uh, anything that's unusual. Most of our lives are made up of a very routine sort of day-to-day kind of existence and uh, people are generally kind to each other and uh, and human goodwill prevails. People uh, follow the rules when they're driving or whatever they're doing and, and that's the norm for most of us, which makes up really the bulk of what happens in any given day and that, when you think about it, is really what the main news story is for any given day. But not so when you're watching or listening to or reading about the news, obviously. Um, what we're getting is um, the more larger-than-life uh, examples and uh, it's always interesting to have that perspective, I think especially when looking at news values. Now, um, 
I must say that to give acknowledgement, a lot of this information about news values is drawn from my old lecturer, Kitty Vigo, who's my journalism lecturer when I was doing a, a writing course with uh, Swinburne Online. And her first lecture notes that I'm drawing from here are from her lecture. Uh, there's nothing new about news value, so I thought I'd better uh, acknowledge Kitty's work there. Thank you. Um, and she drew upon some actually some old research that goes back to like uh, these Norwegian researchers from the 19, from 1965, these people called Johan Geltung and Marie Rouge, who really came up with the, the original characteristics of what we see as news values. And me and Kitty will be drawing from them. Um, keeping in mind that some of the ones that I've already considered, uh, like currency and conflict, uh, you'll, you'll recognize some of them in some of these definitions. What they had to say, uh, so some of the news values they come up with, I won't go through all of them, but uh, some of the, the major ones. First one, the more events concern elite nations like uh, the US and uh, more first world countries, I guess is what they mean, more likely to be defined as news. So it's events affecting uh, the first world as opposed to the third world, which I guess um, obviously points out the need for uh, more third world news agencies like Al Jazeera. Um, and and I, f I find that's really an interesting take on that, um, being, being aware of that news value. So to get a more well-rounded view, it's not a bad idea to check out Al Jazeera if you can. They actually do feature some Al Jazeera news services on our local SBS stations here. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind right there. Um, what else? Uh, the more the event concerns elite people or elite institutions, they're more likely there to be defined as news. This comes back to the whole question of celebrities and sporting heroes and uh, politicians. It's pretty obvious uh, when you see the news, it's often a bunch of talking heads who are well known. Um, the, the less well known people, the the, the general public, you will see um, mainly you know getting a, a grab if, if they happen to witness a crime and so forth. Uh, but generally, if we want um, information, we go to the um, well known people, the, the the scientists, the the people who um, have some credentials, if you like, and that's comes back to elite people. Um, and another item is the uh, question of impact. Uh, the, the more, the greater the impact, the more likely the event is to be identified as news. Goes without saying, really. Um, an airplane crash, you know, will have a lot of impact as opposed to uh, just an every ordinary day car crash. Um, and also the question of uh, proximity uh, is a very important one. Uh, the more proximate the event or issue, the more likely to be covered. Meaning, basically, if it has a local angle. Um, if it's a, an Australian, if there are Australians on board an airplane, uh, then, then then it's going to be more covered than if it's just uh, Iranians or whatever. We we see it so often. Uh, in any sort of disaster that happens overseas, the first question that the Australian press is going to ask is, are there any Australians involved? And it's like their lives are more important than others, and that's what that. Um, Proximity issue, uh, news value is really feeding into very important one uh, that we have the local angle and goes without saying. And next we have the the, the three news values that I've already mentioned that uh, these re researchers also uh, delve into the events or issues that involve conflict are more likely to be found as news and uh, the more unusual or bizarre the events, they are more likely to be be defined as news. Um, and also the currency of the event, um, which I've already gone, gone over. So, um, they're there. 
A different one, though, is and an interesting one is um, the news value where the, the question of what's called consonance, uh, consonance basically meaning uh, whether an event is a consonant with a, a media outlet's perception of itself and its audience, um, the more likely it's to be defined as news. It's an important one. It's, I, I would think of it as the um, the Murdoch Press, the, the news corpse approach to uh, news media, does it fall in line with our own um, ideology, uh, which is a probably even better way of looking at it? Uh, if it fits in with our own ideology, then yes, we will uh, cover it. Uh, that sort of bias uh, is a very important aspect of news values. Um, I, I mentioned another one, I guess, last week, I think, uh, when I talked about uh, that news online um, independent news organisation means TV and, and their own um, definitions of what they would call news uh, falling in line with um, their own ideology if you like and the term there is consonance uh, I, I like to think of it as ideology more than anything or bias but um, yeah, let's go with consonance and now just a couple more um, uh, continuity is an important uh, news value as well. Um, the whole idea is that once an event has been defined as news, it will continue to be defined as news. Um, and this, of course, goes for things like sports, things like business news. Uh, and certainly uh, a, a really popular one has been um, the Catholic Church. Anything that happens with the Catholic Church, especially to do with sexual abuse allegations, has been very, very um, popular. And, of course, the whole Me Too movement has brought out um, that issue as a very important um, a continuous news value, really, now. Uh, it's not being ignored so much like it perhaps used to be. And that's what comes down to continuity. Uh, another one is predictability. Um, there are a certain um, avenues of news that are always predictable, that a large part of any journalistic practice. You have your journalists going to courts, um, you have reports about uh, upcoming protests, uh, any sort of political meetings, um, G7 conferences and so forth, things that are predictable that we know are coming, um, crime reports, legal pronouncements, very important news value because uh, that way uh, the journalists and news organisations can, of course, prepare uh, their news reports beforehand. There's lots and lots of others that I could go into, but I'm going to just stop it there, keeping in mind that um, news reports can actually include more than one news value. Sometimes a news story fits into more than one news value, obviously. They can include things like currency and the local angle and the big with conflict all in one. And, and the more news values that um, a news event has, the more likely it will get, get a, an airing, basically. And before I finish this um, this segment, I would like to just simply uh, bang home the point that news is, for the most part, a social construct. Um, it's not necessarily something that that just happens all of a sudden. There's a nice quote uh, from the the Kitty Vigo article from uh, the journalist. Greg Philo, who uh, says about news that uh, news on television and in the press is not self-defining. News is not found or even gathered so much as made. It is a creation of a journalistic process, an artefact, a commodity even. Yes, and very important, I think, too, when it comes to news values, think about it when your own uh, news consumption. Um, the best way to determine... Um, 
how the, the, the media defines news values is by simply by carefully reading and viewing what you see and identifying those patterns in their coverage and um, pointing them out, ah, what sort of news values is, is on display here? Think about that when whenever you're uh, consuming news. It's a useful uh, tool to have. Yeah, and that's news values for me. And thank you, Kitty Vigo, for your very enlightening article. It was very useful. Okay, now it's time to do our little segment. Promised at the beginning, 10 questions to ask at your next book club meeting. Now, this one comes from some more uh, scholarly notes that, that I've accumulated from study, this time from my library and information services course from last year. <coughs> Thanks to the teachers there for coming up with this one for me because there's some great questions here. And needless to say, it doesn't need to be applied just to a book club meeting. These questions can apply to just your individual reading. You can ask yourselves these questions of your own reading. So keep that in mind. And there's some pretty damn good questions here, which is why I chose to um, illuminate it here. Um, so... Imagine you've got a book club happening, people are reading a book and you finish the book and you're together and these are so 10 questions that you might ask your club to get some discussion going and think about the books. Let's go through them one at a time. Uh, the first one is, what did you think of the ending, which is a nice way to start. Start with the ending. Yeah, because um, endings are divisive. Um, so starting your meeting by discussing the final chapter of a book, it's a great way to kick off. Know, a spirited discussion. You can find out what readers found satisfying. Um, were they surprised? Uh, did they feel it was earned? Um, thinking about how the book wraps up, the story can also uh, offer jumping off points into discussing writing style, plot, and character development. Um, I think of my own reading and uh, endings. Um, sometimes an ending can be just dis disappointing and. Um, I always put that into perspective in whether the book overall was enjoyable. Uh, sometimes, you know, a bad ending can colour your enjoyment, though it shouldn't. If you enjoyed most of the book, then, you know, you would, it's the same like with a film. Endings can be difficult to do, and um, I'm thinking like one book in particular, a book by Kingsley Amos, The Alteration, um, <clears throat> science fiction book, which... Um, the ending of that was not so only disappointing, it made me hate Amos as a writer. I felt like he was, um, I felt like he hated us readers the way he sort of led us astray and, and then threw these punches at us at the end of that book where the main character ends up losing basically. And, uh, oh, I was so disappointed. Whereas other books, you know, have been very, you know, got some classic endings and, Dickens is a master at doing that tale of two cities. I, I can even remember that the lines, uh, it is a far, far better thing I do than I've ever done before. It is a far greater rest I go to than I have ever known. That's just off my memory. <clears throat> Beautiful. And also a great start to that book that it was the best times. It was worst of times. Um, so think of endings. Yeah. Um, spent probably too much time on that one, but let's move on. Um, the next question would be, did your opinion of the book change as you, as you read it? So that's a good one. Um, so it gives members an opportunity to talk about their own reading experience. Maybe they were hooked from the start or maybe they weren't engaged until halfway through. 
You can ask members what it was about the book, the writing, the pacing of the plot that affected their reading experience. So that's a good one. Another question, what did you think of the main characters? Obvious, I guess, but um, it can yield some good responses. You're encouraging your, your, your members to think about, think beyond the like and the dislike, just merely like and dislike. What was the, was the protagonist relatable? Was their narration reliable is another interesting uh, point in that one. Um, so what, what drove them? What did they struggle with? Explore each of the characters' journeys from the beginning of the novel to the end. I really like that one about the reliable. Sometimes the narration is, is unreliable. So next one, how did you see the book's title relating to the story? Like what do you, why do you think it was chosen? Think about that one, the titles. Titles can be pretty damn important. Um, probably not a super huge important question though, but, um, but a lot of work goes into naming a book and it isn't up to the author alone necessarily. Sometimes it's the editors that do that. Um, so what your members make of the title and how it connects to the themes within the book could bring yield some interesting discussion. And while you're on the subject, you'd ask the group what they thought of the book cover. Uh, that could be sort of interesting too. Lots and lots of fabulous book covers. My own opinion about books lately, the covers are awful. I think, I don't know what they're doing, but a lot of them are just, just author titles and, and a brief image, abstract image is just, oh, awful, awful. Um, anyway, moving on, what do you think the author was trying to achieve and did they succeed? Another really penetrating question there to ask because it gets very kind of meta. You go, you go sort of beyond the actual book and you're kind of going stepping outside of it. Um, when discussing a book, it can be useful to take a step back and think about what the author's intentions were. You know, if it was a horror book, um, it's meant to be a horror, did you, did it scare you? Um, if it was a thriller, did it uh, disgust you and elate uh, you and frighten you, perhaps? Um, were you on the edge of the seat? Um, um, and especially if um, the writers experimented with a unique writing style or, or format, that could yield up some interesting discussion. Um, the style, why were they choosing a particular style? What about a point of view? Point of view is another one. Why did they write with third person or first person? Or one one of my bugbears is present tense narratives. I find really pretentious. But anyway, um, so you see what your book club says worked and what which aspects didn't line up with their expectations. School good stuff to go with. So what did you think of the actual author? Is uh, another question. Book clubs can all, are always on the hunt for their next read, which makes it incredibly important to consider how. The group feels about an author's writing style. <clears throat> you can then read more from the author or use that author's name as a starting point when hun hunting for recommendations. Uh, you can also ask members if they, they'd recommend a book to other readers and why. And uh, Well, not just a r the writing style. I think the authors themselves can be contentious. Um, I think recently I, I mentioned a review of uh, Woody Allen's latest book his autobiography um the actual author themselves can be a bit controversial and can ruin whether you like them or not could affect your response to their, their book or even whether you read them obviously so if, another question if you were interviewing the author what would you ask them and a great question that i've often thought about that after reading a book if only i could ask my author these questions i mentioned it i think recently about ursula Le Guin. if i had a chance 
you know, it gives you a chance to write about the writing process or a plot point. Uh, or you may be curious about the author's own reading tastes and habits, all kinds of possibilities there, lots of fun. And sort of following that up, uh, who would you cast in an adaptation, like a film adaptation? Another great question. I know as a, an attempted author myself, um, I often when I was writing my novel, um, thinking about who, who would play my character in this, you know, <laughs> um, and, and actually visualizing your novel when you're writing it really does help with all those visual aspects that you could include in your, in your novel instead of waiting till it gets to the film stage. And even editing is, is a very important thing that, that can help with, with that. Uh, because the first thing that happens with film adaptations is, is the books get edited, they get narrowed down and things get cut out because they're too long and, uh, at least a nice concise writing. Um, script writers are very concise in their, the way they adapt books. Um, one final question here, um, to finish up. What was your favorite quote? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes books aren't quotable, I would say. Sometimes they are and sometimes you forget or sometimes they're so memorable you just you get a pencil out and pencil on margin and, and you commit them to memory like I did with the, the Dickens book. I think lots of books that um, not, not only have good quotes but just pa- entire passages that I love. I'm thinking uh, J.G. Ballard's novel Crash. Oh, I can think of so many, almost the entire works of Ursula Le Guin, of course. But actually, the the one that, that, that really stands out for me that I often think of as, as a fantastic quote, and it's actually a final ending of a, of a novel, is um, Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. I love the ending to that book. And I think I might end this section by reading it out for you because it's beautiful. Um, at the end of the book, the three main characters uh, are dead. Uh, and the narrator um, visits them one final time, and that's the setup. And here it is the quote I sought and soon discovered the three headstones on the slope next to the moor, the middle one grey and half buried in heath, Edgar Linton's only harmonised by the turf and moss creeping up its foot, Heathcliff's still bare. I lingered around them, under that benign sky, watched the moths fluttering among the heath and harebells, listened to the soft wind breathing through the grass, and wondered how anyone could ever imagine unquiet slumbers for the sleepers in that quiet earth. Wow, there's really nowhere else to go from there, really, from Emily Bronte's um, Wuthering Heights, but then to to get out of here, I think. This has been Russell uh, with Transition Seeker. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, I'll be back next week, hopefully, and uh, I'll check you then. Bye.